The markets got slammed today as renewed concerns over the health of the global economy, specifically China, as well as worries for U.S. banks sent stocks sharply lower. The S&P 500 closed down over 1% on the day, further making August a punishing month for equities as the index has given up over 3.25%. So what should you do with your money? We have all the answers for you. Welcome, everyone, to Buy, Hold, Sell. I am your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith, out in sunny and hot Scottsdale, Arizona. And we have a very special featured guest with us today, Victoria Fernandez, Chief Market Strategist at Crossmark Global Investments, headquartered in Houston, Texas, is joining the show. Victoria, welcome to the program. Yeah, my pleasure. Start off with you. So Wall Street strategists all seem to be in one of two camps. One is the Fed stops hiking in September, and with a relatively strong consumer plus wage growth, plus 3.5% unemployment means a soft landing. Or with the spiking credit card defaults, auto loan defaults, shelter costs to the moon, signaling the Fed may not be done after all. Which camp are you in? You know, Todd, I think I lean a little bit more towards the latter group. And really, it comes down to the fact that everything that we have been doing over the last couple of years, at some point you have to pay the piper for these things. And so we anticipate that we're going to probably start to see that in the fourth quarter of this year. So you're right. There are a lot of great things about the economy right now. The consumer is strong, healthy household balance sheets. We're seeing GDP projections that are going higher. I mean, look at the Atlanta Fed, right? Say what? 4%. Uh, for the Atlanta Fed. Mm -hmm. So you have all these positive things going on. But at the same time, we got to say, wait a minute, when are we going to feel the effects of this 525 basis points of hikes that have come through? When is the consumer going to start to pull back? When are we going to see corporate revenues start to shrink with the margins? And we think that's going to be coming. So we lend it you know, lean a little bit more towards not a recession per se, but a pullback. And I think we've already seen that start to happen. Hey, Victoria, question, because you are a a bond person as well as an equity person. We sort of felt felt a little bit like held hostage with with the the 10-year rate just like bouncing around like a ping pong ball. Um, And, you know, the common knowledge always is, which I just hate common, you know, knowledge, which is that, well, gosh, if the rates get to a certain rate, then people, you know, there's no more, no alternative. There is an alternative and I'm going to lock in, you know, a a two-year bond or a five-year bond at 5% taxable, of course, uh, and, you know, let it fly. And therefore I'm going to lower my equity, uh, you know, percentages. How how do you deal with the bond stock fandango right now? Just use a little Houstonian terms for you. (laughs) I like the Texas lingo coming in. Um, So look, (laughs) when you're looking at a portfolio, obviously there is nothing wrong with having a balanced portfolio. And depending on what you want that allocation to be, obviously depends on a lot of other factors and individual uh, risk. Wait a minute, except for last year where bonds were down 30% and stocks were down 25%. That's true. That's true. But if you needed consistent income rolling off of a portfolio to pay a liability of some sort, some kind of a monthly or quarterly bill, then it makes sense to have, even last year, some of those um, holdings because you could always hold it to maturity if you need to, which means you have to be smart when you buy it. But here's the risk that I think some people face. Obviously, I manage fixed income portfolios, so I like to see some fixed income allocation. What people can't do right now is say, look, I'm going to go all in on fixed income or all in on that short part of the curve and get that 
4%, 5% yield because your reinvestment risk that comes along with that is really large. Say you buy six month, nine month, 12 month bills. And we do see a year from now, the Fed starting to cut rates and that short end of the curve drops dramatically. When those bonds mature, you're then sitting there. So you're kind of like a sitting duck going, wait a minute, I was getting a four and a half percent coupon. Now I'm getting a 2% coupon and I had all my eggs in this basket. I think you need to have that balanced approach. Even in fixed income, you can have some holdings that are longer out the curve, yeah. have some corporate holdings with longer duration, if that's what you want to do, so that you don't put yourself in a position where you go from a great yielding portfolio to something much, much less when they all mature. Yeah, I've been waiting for somebody to ring the bell on when we should buy with leverage some 10-year paying 5%, because as a guy who started in the bond market, I was selling bonds in <coughs> 1983. Um, and, and I was going to pension plans, schlepping, you know, bond funds, paying a 17, 18% yield. Exactly. Now, of exactly. course, inflation was 8%, but it was, you know, it was rapidly. Anyway, the point was, I did a, a chart and I showed that if you put $100 million, you know, for these multi-billion dollar funds, you put $100 million in US 10-year bond at this price, because obviously, as rates go up, the price goes down. Yep. That when they... 30 years out, you're going to make eight or 10 times your money just on the appreciation of the bond. And then another 2X or 3X. And they all looked at me like I had five heads, you know, moving around. Like I, I was <laughs> nutty. I said, you guys are pension <laughs> managers? You, you know, it was always like the fireman's, you know, uh, pension fund. And there's always like right. 12 firemen. You know, you've done that pitch before. Yep. And, and I could not beat it out of them to understand that bonds go, the bond itself, those 30 years go up in value when rates come down because they're still paying a fixed rate. Um, what, exactly when, when are we going to get that bell? That's what I'm asking, Victoria. Well, I wish I could tell you exactly when that's going to happen, but I think- That's not why you're here, Victoria. You're here <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint everyone. All right. I do think the one thing though that we have to notice right now is that you can actually buy bonds at a discount right now. So even if- you know, rates move against you, you can hold that bond to maturity. Not only are you getting your income return, but you are getting a, a positive price return as well. And, you know, look, people need to remember when you're looking at a fixed income security, if you look at that total return number over time, break it down into its two components, the income return and the price return. It's the income component of your return that's really driving the total return. So you want to make sure you lock some of that income in. And if you can do it at a discount right now, then you're sitting in a really good position to let that just sit in your portfolio and yeah. generate some cash for you. Todd, she's making bonds sexy again, brother. I like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, she is. That's our headline right there. And yeah. Victoria, the, the question I have, though, we had the retail sales data that came out today, mm -hmm. much, much hotter than expected. I mean, yes. ex exclude autos, you're up 1%. I mean, truly a, a blockbuster number. And I could see why the markets would slide off of that great news, because now there's fear that the economy might be running a little bit hot and who knows what the Fed's going to do. So going forward after September. So what I have, my question is though, why hasn't the consumer felt this yet? That five plus percent in rate hikes, credit card defaults are out there. People are still losing jobs. 
But they, where's all this money coming from? Because banks certainly aren't lending. Well, you, we know that they've had it for a while, right? We, you look back over the past few years and the stimulus that has come to individuals, that kind of set the stage. A lot of that money went into savings. If you look right now, the savings rate is still a point and a half higher than the lowest point in 2022. So there's still some savings there from the stimulus checks that people received. And the labor market, I know you said people are losing jobs, but the labor market is pretty strong right now. Let's look at wages. Wages continue to hold their own. If we look at wages in the goods producing sector over the last three months, they're running at almost 7% year over year. Year over year. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. You know, Victoria, I I have this uh, thesis that what I think a lot of macroeconomists are missing is, and Todd's heard this 500 times, so I'll make it short, but we have about 89 million people in the United States who are on getting a monthly check from the pension or from Social Security. That's 89 million. We only have 133 million households. Secondarily, we have the 63 counties of which Houston is one of those counties that account for 74% of all the GDP in the United States. So if those counties are strong and we have at least two thirds people getting monthly checks, not stimulus checks, social security, pensions, IRAs, et cetera. We have a whole generation of people who have retired and they actually have an IRA. They actually have a Roth IRA and they're spending like like crazy. And and as you know, the top 20% of households own about 86% of the wealth. Right. They're doing, you know, so there's an underlying guardrail, I believe, in the U.S. economy that that, that people are not recognizing. Um, and that's why spending's not going down, because I can tell you at this point in my life, what else am I going to buy? <laughs> I mean, I've got a 75 inch TV, an 85 inch TV, you know. Uh, I've got the car, I've got the house, I got the, uh, there's nothing more to buy. You're going to go out, right? <laughs> you're going to go out to restaurants, you're going to go out to bars. We're seeing spending going up yes. in some of that service component. And household balance sheets are strong to what you're saying compared to historical levels. So the money is there. And even the wealthier component, those that have the ability to continue spending, yes, maybe they're spending a little bit less or maybe they're spending down the cost curve, right? Instead of buying the most expensive brand, they're maybe buying more of a middle tier brand, but they're still spending. And if inflation's coming down, that means real spending is going higher. Yeah, well, look at Walmart. I mean, Walmart has shown more growth on 100,000 plus income households. That's their primary growth target. The other thing is go on your Facebook page and look to where your friends are right now. They're all in freaking Europe. And, and, you know, it's You heard it from the airlines. International travel is going crazy right now. Yeah, yeah. So I. Well, I'm not know, sure why I'm sitting here in Houston in 100 degree heat, and you're in in Arizona in 110 degree heat. We need yeah, to go well, somewhere. Yeah, but listen, Victoria, it's a dry heat, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's but great. I mean, there, to me, there are there are structural guardrails to consumer spending, and yes, uh, you know, 800,000 people who have college loans are going to, you know, some of them are going to have to start repaying, or some are going to default, whatever. But you got to look at the big picture. These, you know, the 145 million households, actually 155, you count, you know, uh, the, the whole schmazzle. And in so much of that, obviously the top 20% owns 86% of the wealth. In terms of the income, the top 40% has five times the income of the people on the bottom. So, you know, we're always have, unfortunately, in the United States, this dichotomy 
between the haves, the haves not, and the sort of haves. And, and the people who are struggling are still struggling. But right. they were struggling before the pandemic. They were struggling, you know, way before this. And now anybody with a ID and, you know, can fog a mirror, can get a job. That's right. um, and so, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, we've seen the jolts number come down a little bit, but we still have, what, 1.6, 1.7 jobs out there for anyone that's looking for one. Right. And we're not seeing the participation rate go a lot higher, which tells me people aren't sitting there saying, I need to go get a job. They're okay. They're not coming back into the labor force. I think we're going to have to see that happen before you hit the consumer demand that the Fed is trying to hit. What they have done so far is not working. Now, granted, some of that has to do with the fact that the loans we have are different. They're more fixed rate than variable yeah. rate like we used to have before the financial crisis. So things are a little bit different there. A lot of people locked in those really low rates over the last few years. But the consumer is sitting in a really strong position, not needing to go back to work for those that are sitting at home right now. now I, it, Victor, I've had this thesis that since um, shelter costs is basically 40% of the CPE, right? that we had the real big jump last year, October, November in, in shelter costs, which, which by the way, just always cracks me up. They call a thousand homeowners and they say, what could you rent your house for? And now that goes into an entire index. I'm not quite sure about that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but we do have this, this uh, shelter cost coming down. That's the case that, it, you know, we're going to get this, this, the sticky stuff is going to start to get unsticky. But the other case has always been that, since Tobin is right, and you can't kill the job market, you can't kill unemployment, shelter costs sprang mm -hmm, up again, mm -hmm. that the Fed is going to have to do what the Fed has to do, which is crush the economy. Why doesn't the Fed have to crush the economy to get to the 2%, which is a complete bullshit number that they just pulled out of their keister anyway, but don't get me started. <laughs> no, and, and here's the question. Are they going to stick to that 2% that, like you said, where did they get 2% from? No, I'm not so sure they do. If they want to keep the economy from going into recession, they're not going to say they have to keep doing things to get it down to 2%, because that is going to drive us into a recession. I don't think the Federal Reserve is done. When you look at the numbers that we got, look at the retail sales numbers, look at the CPI numbers. I know they came down a little bit, but you're talking about those stickier parts. Look, yeah. housing prices are moving higher. Oh. Right. So it takes a little bit of time for that to feed through into that survey you're talking about. Yeah. But I can guarantee you, my daughter, my college students, apartment rent in New York City did not go down. It went up. Right. Well, that's so New I York City. Come on, Victoria. <laughs> right. So of course it did. I, I used to date a girl who lived in Houston in, the, in, in, in about the 90s or early 80s, as you said. And she lived in this fancy schmancy apartment in Houston. Uh, four bed or three bedrooms, you know, and it was 200 bucks a month. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> that, was, that was the Enron building. That was, yeah. Oh, no. Houston well, has always had a, a lot of land and no zoning. That's uh, right. And, you know, and that's why real estate so, so long. But I, did say, I mean, it's an interesting point that I've always believed, you know, that if the Fed came out and said, hey, hey wait a minute, we didn't mean 2%. You know, that's the old ways. We've done the calculations with the 115 economists that I don't know what the hell do there all day. And, uh, you know, we can do two and a half, uh, two, two, 2.5. And then wouldn't the bond market just puke? Wouldn't they yes. say that now you've lost your credibility? Well, and, and I think... 
I think the market, the equity market would say, hallelujah, we're done. And it would take off like a rocket. I think you would see um, inflation expectations come down. You would then see the longer part of the curve uh, move down and mm-hmm. all across the curve because then they would expect rate cuts. So I think you would see a, a real shift in the markets if they came out and said that. Mm-hmm. But I think the time has passed for them to do that. They have had plenty of opportunities. Powell has had plenty of opportunities yeah. to talk about not accepting 2% as the goal. And he has actually pushed back against that and said, no, 2% is where we're heading. Well, if that's where you're heading, then I think you've Mm -hmm. got more work to do. I think Jackson Hole next week may give us a little bit of insight. I mean, they're going to be talking about different topics and global economy, and I get that. But maybe we get a little bit of inkling if Europe or other areas of the world are willing to accept higher inflation. Maybe that pulls us higher. But I think right now they're sticking with 2%. And as I said, I think that means the Fed has more work well, to do. Th- that's, I guess, my to- Toby, 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 what, hold that rebuttal. Hold uh-huh. that there. Because I do want to follow up with that. Yes, it is a long road from 3% to 2%. We're going to get more into that discussion right now, or after the break, I should say. So joining us today on Buy, Hold, Sell, we have Victoria Fernandez. She is the Chief Market Strategist at Crossmark Global Investments out of Houston, Texas. And we'll be right back after the break. Please stay with us. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the u.s have to be american built owned and crewed That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel. Welcome back to Buy, Hold, Sell, where the stock market 
came out today, went through the floor as we saw the S&P 500 lose went over 1% on the day, pushing the August performance down over 3 and a quarter percent with a selling stop. Well, we have somebody that we think can give you the right answer here. We have Victoria Fernandez. She is the chief market strategist at Crossmark Global Investments in Houston, Texas. She's joining the show today. And when we left off in the last block, we were talking about potential recession. We had the Fed going into Jackson Hole next week. Victoria, I got to ask you, when they meet in Jackson Hole, I know they're not just fly fishing out there. What do you think they're talking about? I mean, are they really thinking, should we continue this hiking cycle a little bit longer? Well, I think you, since you've got leaders from all different areas there, I think they are sitting around and going, look, Tell me what's going on where you are. Let's discuss this. They want some kind of a coordinated effort. So is there some talk going on behind the scenes? Absolutely, I think there is. Are we gonna get some earth shattering news out of Jackson Hole? Probably not. I mean, what is it they used to tell us? Was it Greenspan's briefcase? Is that who yeah. you know, no, yeah. the briefcase was and all of that stuff? There was a thing about the height of the FOMC uh, leader and all these things. So look, I think we're going to get the same story coming out of Jackson Hole, but maybe we can read a little bit into what they're thinking going forward in regards to are they done or do they think maybe there's a little bit more to go? I would love to just kind of hear an inkling as to what they're thinking. You know, Victor, I've uh, I've been at the bar there uh, at that uh, lodge uh, during Fed time and you know, you're you're biting your tongue, or trying to you know try to get something out of somebody. <laughs> but honestly, just like anything else, when the truth serum is in uh, at about eleven thirty, yeah, uh, it, it was interesting. The the one and only time I was there is it you know like the third or fourth uh, banker for the third or fourth district that would, didn't really mean anything. They would you know they would start to loosen up, and today you can't do that. Because it, you know, there's micros, you know, phones everywhere, and there's cell phones, <laughs> and so on and so forth. I mean, the United, we're now in a situation where you have the United Kingdom is in recession. You have most of Europe, except for God bless the Swedes and the Norwegians, <laughs> who are you know kicking ass because yeah, you know the they Germans don't run they don't run deficits of of you know one and a half times their GDP and they actually save money. It's just strange, Victoria. It's strange these people. I don't know what happened. <laughs> um, and now now we're at that point that I'll just go back to the original point what I'm trying to make, which is that you're not worried that the Fed would lose credibility if they call timeout and say, you know, two and a half percent. Did we mean three? No, we didn't mean three. Because to me, if they lost credibility, then the Japanese sell a, this is a very scientific term, a shit ton of our bonds. They only own about $4 trillion. Um, China will sell more of the bonds, which then, you know, craters the dollar. And as the dollar craters, then all of a sudden, you know, hey, oil and gas prices come down, uh, you know, oil that settles in dollars goes down. Everybody else wins. Why, why, why won't they do that? I think that, we already went through a little bit of that time period where they lost some credibility, right? Thanks from what, March a year ago when they started to hike rates, there was all sorts of questions around, is there credibility around the Fed in regards to yeah. 50 basis point hike, 75 basis point hike? Are they going to skip? What are they going to do? I think there's always a question around the credibility of the Fed, but they balance that out by saying that they are data dependent. You know those words and they oh, are yeah. going to live by those words. And that allows them to change their mind depending on the data. I mean, they could easily come out and say, look, retail sales killed it. 
during the month of July. So we need to keep going. Or if we get a negative number, they can call on that in order to fit their narrative. So are they gonna lose credibility? Maybe in the, a short period of time if they change course quickly, but I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to really try to lay that story out ahead of time. Um, so people are well aware of what they're going to do. And, and I think people kind of expect them to do that. So no. will they lose credibility? We hear that talk all the time. I'm not sure it will be something to the point that you're talking about where we see selling of U.S. Treasuries. Well, where do, you, where do you stand then in the futures? The bond futures market have already priced in uh, that we're cutting rates. Uh, and, and stocks clearly have yeah. priced in that we're cutting rates. Um, they have. You know. And I'm very surprised that we're seeing that in the bond yeah. market. I know it's been pushed out, right? Originally, it was priced in that we were going to see that in the fourth quarter of this year. Yeah, it yeah. Got priced yeah. out. What is it? Sure, is it we're going to see that. I, I don't know what they were smoking. I don't know, but I think it's March now. Even then, the Fed is not going through all of this. They're not going through 18 months of hiking rates, 525, 550, whatever the final number is going to be, in order to turn around a couple months later and start yeah. cutting. They're just not going to do that. They need to let that work its way through the economy. It takes, what, 9, 12 months for that to happen? We've only just had the first couple hikes start to feed through the economy. It's why I think we're going to see a bigger pullback later this year or the beginning of next year. So I don't think they're cutting rates anytime soon. The soonest I think we might see is middle of next year. And even then, um, I will be a little wary because I think the consumer is going to give a strong enough foundation yeah. to where they're not going to have to jump in and do that quickly. Well, that's a conundrum I have, which is that, first off, I can't stand historical of uh, you know time frames because the economy we had in the 60s you know was 48% you know products and the, yep. even in the 70s it was 40% also we had 28% of the, the employees were union jobs in the 70s and going into the 80s right so you had these right. cost of living adjustments that that you know created a, a feedback loop a negative feedback loop but right. well, we don't have that stuff anymore and i i none of the brainiacs at the fed have convinced me at all that they have any freaking clue about what the economy in 2023 is. And I'm sorry, I don't buy your point on the fact that, you know, there's still cash in all those stimmy checks things because they all went into meme stocks for Christ's sakes. So I think they <laughs> lost their ads. But, well, maybe they, maybe they were smart and cashed some of that out at the right time. So they uh, got some of their money back. I, I, can don't tell you, I can tell you're an optimist. An optimist that still thinks a recession is coming. So that's I, there you go. Well, that's, well, I want to ask you that because you have publicly stated that, that you thought there would be a mild recession. Yes. Do you, and you were you actually earlier this year, you were speaking maybe September, October timeframe. Right. What do you think now? I mean, we're bumping up to September. I mean, is your, you're still sticking with that timeframe? Yeah, and I think it comes down to, I do think we're going to see this pullback in, in the fourth quarter of this year. And I think the question comes down to how large is this pullback going to be? Are we going to be wrong in using the words mild recession? Yeah. Is it not going to be that big of a pullback? Are we going to have maybe a total of a 7 to 10% pullback? Maybe we've already had part of that. We've already seen some of that happen. I tell you, I think if the Fed had not stepped in as quickly as it did at the end of March, when we had with issues with the banks, yeah. we would have had our recession already and we would have turned that corner. But they stepped in so quickly and provided so much liquidity and support yeah. to this market 
that it just continued to churn. But look, the gains in the market have been all PEs, right? Yeah. It's, the, it's the valuations are just insane. And as someone that looks at fundamentals, along with our CIO, Bob Dahl, I mean, we sit and we look at these and we go, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. So at some point, as I said in the very beginning, we have to pay the piper for what we have right now. I think we get a pullback. We've already had what, three, four percent at this point? I don't know, including mm -hmm. today, how far that puts us off the highs we had. But, you know, maybe another five or six percent pullback and then maybe valuations, we can start to consolidate, valuations can come back down and then we can see the market moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you this. I, I, as soon as those NVIDIA earnings came out, I felt like it was 1994 again. <laughs> uh, I, my first stock I ever recommended was MicroStrategy, believe it or not. It oh, yeah. From, Michael Saylor. Yeah, it went from $18 to $180, which made me the smartest human being in the history of the planet. I had a private company that go public, and the investors in it were like, Toby, we only made 25 times our money on this thing. What the hell happened? <laughs> I mean, the expectations are just – and that AI moment, man, when, you know, when uh, – I don't know. C3 AI is my favorite one to pick on. It has very little AI. They basically work for an energy services company and then have a couple of corporate clients and it went up 500%. Look, so all you we've had a mania. Do, we've had a little mini mania, a <laughs> mini mania. That's exactly it. If you just use the words or the letters AI in your call, in your earnings call, everyone was happy and your stock went up. I'm hoping that your listeners actually started trimming some of those names when they saw that. That's what we did at Crossmark. We yep. went in and we said, look, we may miss some of the upside, but we know this is stretched. So we actually started trimming our holdings like NVIDIA in order to make sure we captured some of that profit that's there. And you can play the AI through different names. You can play it through Adobe. You can play it through Salesforce. There's other ways you can play it where you're not looking at such stretched valuations as a name like NVIDIA. Yeah, I, I hear Bob Dahl back there somewhere. I, I yeah. Think yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, so with a few minutes left in the, to go yeah. on the show, Victoria, I'm just curious on specific sectors. I mean, it's obvious with the interest rates so high and mortgage rates up over 7% right now. What, what's your thought on the real estate industry is specifically home builders? Yeah, so obviously there's a lot of concern around commercial real estate. We all know the headlines around that. It's part of the reason we're seeing such issues with the banking stocks right now. So, you know, REITs is probably not uh, your favorite place to be within the real estate sector, but you look at housing. I mean, look, I know we had the NAHB report come out today that was not as good as expected, but if you take a little bit of a step back and see what housing has done, it's really strong. I mean, home builders have been strong for a while. So could you have some exposure to home builders? I think you can. And you can look at home builders in certain parts of the country where you're seeing it. In the Midwest, in the South especially, you're seeing a lot of builders there, a lot of inventory. Look at the retail sales today. Building materials, I want to say, was the second largest component um, of retail sales. So People going in and buying things for remodels, um, builders going in and buying for the supplies that they yeah. need. I think you can have some exposure there and do pretty well. You know, Todd, I, I'm a, I've always looked at the 52-week high list for longer than uh, uh, Victoria's been alive. And um, in looking at it today from yesterday, uh, almost 40% of the new 52-week highs 
we're home building supply mm -hmm. givers, you know, everything mm -hmm. from the fiberglass, Owens Corning to, you know, and and absolutely, well, number one. Number two, my friends in the building business uh, constantly remind me that, you know, Toby, when I bought this land at eight or 10 or 15 years ago, and I'm now just starting to develop, my cost basis is zip. When I build the house, then I get to sell at a profit and I take a part of that profit and I buy down the mortgage rate for my new buyer from 7% down to about 3%. And that changes the whole structure of the transaction. They right. lose a little bit of the profit. They, they're turning over property like crazy. So almost all those new homes, if you go in today and you're not like Todd, you're just walking over the checkbook and find it for cash, <laughs> um, you are going to get your mortgage rate bought down to about 3% for at least three years, sometimes even up to five years. Um, yeah. and, and, and that, that could affect margins a little, right, for the yes, builders. But absolutely. inventory is so low that I think you've got a, a pretty long runway there that you can still take advantage of that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, we're, we're long builders, we're long suppliers, we're long treks. You know, when, when you yes. build a house today, back in the day, when I first house, <laughs> you know, you had to go build something and you use this stuff called wood and it looked like crap in about three years. Now yeah, with treks and, and the other one, I just can't think of, uh, it, it freaking, you could have a nuclear bomb go off and your deck is still going to be, you know, as beautiful as your smile, Victoria. Okay? Oh, thank you. No, there you're the charmer. associated with that, guys, right? I mean, you're right. It's the suppliers. Yeah. Look at Sherwin-Williams, you know, yeah. for the paint. All the elements that go into that, I think, is a way that you can play the housing market. There's lots of different opportunities Beacon there. Beacon roofing. Beacon yes. roofing, you know, is, is who knew that they supply all those guys that Buffett just bought as home builders. They're the ones that do it. And then the windows. Um, my brother just built a, a house and he had to get custom windows. The custom windows cost more than my first house. <laughs> I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And, yep. you know, the window makers, et cetera. So there's a way to play this, you know, boom. And then the other side is the boomers like me who are moving from Southern California or Maryland to Scottsdale, you know, show up with a boatload of cash by selling a 1,500 square foot house in the right location for $3 million. And then you walk out and you say, well, do we really need, you know, this much room? Oh, let's get a 2,000 square foot house and spend a million dollars. Oh, then you got 2 million left after, you know, before you pay taxes. That's and there's all that money so you can go buy more goods and go to more restaurants and supporting the consumer. So it all and, and, comes full circle. Yeah. All right. Hey, fi final question for you. You're, you're in Houston. I have to ask you about the energy sector. And we oil has been a, a big story lately, particular, particularly the big oil companies right now. What are your thoughts? I mean, are we going to see oil falling? I mean, we haven't had a hurricane or at least one that has been oh, a headliner. I can't headliner. believe you just said that. Dude. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I just jinxed it. I just jinxed it. Galveston is in the crosshair. Sorry. I got to ask you, though. Victoria, it was great though. to have you on for the one and only time because you'll never come back. <laughs> he used the H word for crying out loud. Here we go. But look, oh, the no, no. energy but sector. I, go ahead. Go ahead. You have to have some exposure for the energy sector. I just, I mean, look at where oil has gone since the middle of June, it's up 20%, right? Gasoline up 8%. There's movement here and momentum in this market. Now I know there's concern around demand out of China, but there's also concern around some of the supply components. So I think it's a good place to be. You look at something like a ConocoPhillips, it's a name that we own. You need to have that energy exposure and it's the only sector where you're seeing over 90% of the names in the energy sector 
trading above its 200-day moving average. So you've got positive momentum in that sector. I think it's going to continue to do well. Make sure you have some exposure there. Yeah, and remember, and remember that this last quarter, you know, oil. If you're an oily type of energy firm, prices were down from $140 down to 76, you know, $68. Right. So this quarter is going to be lower. But what we what we don't have is we don't have. Uh, 300,000 barrels of oil coming out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve every day for 135 days. Um, that wow, it made oil prices go down, didn't? That's great. So then it meant all of a sudden <laughs> now nobody's drilling in the Permian, no one's drilling, etc. Right. And so prices are going to go back up. And Listen, you've got to fill that SPG at some point, right? right. So yeah. And, oh, by the way, we're not going to fill it back again until we get to $65 oil. What do they have? Any economists, energy economists there, Todd? I mean. No. Gee, <laughs> exactly. Gee, no. gee, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna buy back 18 billion dollars of my stock, like Exxon and and you know Oxy and the other guys have done. I'm gonna increase dividends, and then when you idiots start refilling the, the petroleum reserve, um, yeah. and guess what's going to happen? Prices are going to go up. Then I'll start drilling mm -hmm. some more. But there but you go. Fracking is expensive. And you can't make money with sixty-five, you know, fifty-five dollar oil and fracked oil. Sorry. And those balance sheets at those companies are extremely strong. They've yeah. got a lot of cash sitting on those balance sheets, and they're not mm -hmm. willing to really go out and do the capex because they don't know what regulations are waiting for them. So their balance sheets are strong, and that's something we look for in a company. You got dividends, you got strong balance sheets, you got good management teams. I think you can have some exposure here. I'm with you. Yeah, I like that a lot. All right, guys, we're going to leave it there. Victoria, thank you so much. You were sensational today. I think you said it all today. We can't, can't thank you enough for joining us. So, uh, so give our best to Doll. I haven't seen Bob Doll yeah, in but, 10 years. Oh, absolutely. Since our Merrill Lynch days. Yeah. yeah that's right. I would let him know. Long time ago. So, so uh, on behalf of Victoria Fernandez from Crossmark Global Investors out of Houston, Texas, and Tobin Smith, I am Todd Schoenberger. Thank you once again for joining us today on Buy, Hold, Sell. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.